Welcome to the Boulder Bassoon Quartet Podcast. So today we're going to conclude the origin stories of the quartet members. And uh, to, to start things off with, uh, I'm Brian. I'm Ethan. I'm Kent. I'm Michael. And it is this last gentleman, Michael, who is the brunt of our inquisition today. Oh, and we have a special guest with us as well. Uh, joining us today is... Kaori Unoja. Yeah. And people got me. I didn't forget you. You never did. Forget you. Right. So, Michael. Yes, Brian. How did you come into contact with the bassoon? Uh, well, in listening to you guys tell your um, origins narratives, it, it struck me that my path with the bassoon has been far less direct and far less purposeful. Um, I kind of stumbled into it. I started junior high band when I was in seventh grade. And uh, I suppose my band director also suggested, hey, do you want to play the bassoon? I didn't really know what the bassoon was. Um, I knew the, uh, the grandpapa solo from Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. thought that was pretty cool. But I think the thing that really drew me to the instrument was the fact that no one else played it. At that time, were you playing any instrument? Uh, I had gotten like three or four weeks in on the oboe. Oh, wow. oh wow! How'd you pick the oboe? Uh, a friend of mine was playing the oboe. And who was she? Oh, uh, that's right. right. Her name was yeah. Andy Rogers. Oh baby, was she a Southern belle with a oboe bell? Nah, yeah. he, he was from Michigan. What he? Yeah, Andy Rogers. Oh, Andy! I thought you said Sandy. No. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, I heard Andy, but I thought, well, maybe it's short for Andrea. Yeah, like McDowell? Yeah. No. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I, I was 13, so it's kind of like either you do what your friends are doing or you do the thing that nobody else is doing. So I ended up on the bassoon. Um, and so it was Tennessee? It was in Tennessee. Yeah, I grew up in Tennessee. Uh, I had a little bit of musical training very informally. Um, I was pretty involved in the uh, church in my town, and so, like... Um, youth choir and handbell choir. Uh, so oddly, I learned how to read music a little bit through that, a little bit about rhythms. Were your parents musical? Um, no, my mom sings, uh, not, not professionally. She's an amateur singer, and my father, not at all. He prides himself on being completely non-musical. He prides himself on it. What does that mean? Uh, um, I mean, you'd have to know my dad. I've never sung a note in my life. Like, like me, my father has a bit of a self-deprecating streak. And so um, when we have conversations about the idea that I've taken on music, um, he, in sort of a... I guess a playful, lighthearted way, he tends to shake his head and say, I have no idea where this came from. I have no, oh. no musical bone in my body. Band, yeah, so bassoon, I liked it. I was pretty fortunate, um, it was a small town that I grew up in in Tennessee, but there was a, like a small regional university, Tennessee Technological University, and um, there was a bassoon professor there um, by the name of uh, James Lotes. And so I got to take some private lessons from him for a while. And then when I was Starting in my... Starting it in, in junior high? Yeah, I was probably in ninth grade when I started taking with Mr. Lopes. Um, I, I think I took about six months worth of lessons with Bill Woodworth, the oboe professor there. And then he got to a point that he was like, yeah, you know what? You should start, you should start studying with our bassoon professor. Mr. Lopes is six feet eight. 
Oh. Whoa. And he is one of the kindest men that I know. But man, when you're 14 years old, anybody who's six foot eight is an intimidating character. Does he play with weird equipment to compensate for his height? Like, does he have a straight vocal? No. No? No, but he, I mean, he carries the instrument like it's a matchstick or something. He, no, he's, he's got just a normal, normal heckle, normal heckle vocal. What is next? College. College. Um, so at what point did you decide, I'm going to study music in college? So in my 20s, in my, in my late teens and early 20s, um, I don't know, I had a teenager phase. Uh, I did not go to college straight out of high school and was kind of just wasting time, I suppose. Ran into Mr. Lotes um, in the grocery store in town, and he was like, Michael, what are you doing? Well, I don't know, Mr. Lotes, I'm not really doing anything. Well, you're gonna get your bassoon out and you are gonna brush up a movement of the Vivaldi Sonata we were working on. You're gonna come in next week and audition. I'm gonna give you a scholarship and you're gonna come to college. Huh. Okay, Mr. Lopes. <laughs> and so I did. Um, and there were a handful of other things that kind of, it wasn't a, uh, an immediate decision. Well, I'm going to be a musician. It was a series of very gradual uh, decisions. A series of trying to separate myself from the decision to be a musician and finding that, kind of like Kent, I missed it a lot and kept coming back. Um, Mahler 5, I got to play Mahler 5 at the Swanee Summer Music Festival. That was a, a pretty fun thing. It was the first big orchestra piece I had ever played. Um, and so maybe more than the piece itself, the, the process, the experience of sitting in a room with almost 100 other people, all focused on the same task, the same purpose. Um, there was a really engaging, energetic, good conductor. I don't know, it was a good time. That conductor was from the University of Michigan. Oh, oh conspiracies. Man. <laughs> and then throughout the time that I was at Tennessee Tech, uh, I did some pretty good stuff, I suppose, but I definitely suffered a lot from the like big fish in a small pond syndrome. There, for most of the time that I was there, there were not other bassoon majors. I was the bassoon player. And so, it was very easy for me to think more highly of myself than was deserved. And because nobody was better than you. Because, well, there was nobody there that was schooling me until the last couple of years that I was there, there was a, a freshman uh, that came in uh, named Katie. And it was, it was actually a bit of a wake-up call uh, to, to have Katie come in and thump me in a lot of areas. Do you uh, know what Katie's doing nowadays? Yeah, I do, actually. She... Um, Went to New York and studied with Frank Morelli for a few years. And then um, the last that I have talked to her, she was down in the Atlanta area. Uh, I think she's teaching at Georgia State and at another university as well. And she's freelancing with um, a variety of orchestras, including the Knoxville Symphony and the Nashville Symphony. Huh. But to be fair, I think the last time I talked to her was two or three years ago. So I know enough about her to know that she has established herself in the professional bassoon world. She's a really good player. Hats off, Katie. Wherever you are, go Bills. So you, uh, where'd you go for, you went to Arizona for your masters? Yeah, I ended up, um, ended up at the University of Arizona. Why'd you go there? You wanted to be with the cacti? Well, 
as it happens, I really fell in love with the desert, and I think Tucson is a beautiful place. But no, that's not why. Um, I auditioned at Cincinnati to study with Mr. Winstead and ended up uh, at the top of the alternate list. So if someone had decided not to go to Cincinnati to study with Mr. Winstead, I could have gone. Um, but as it was, he didn't have a place for me, and so he suggested that since I had not made provisions or come up with a backup school, he suggested a couple of places. Uh, and Will Dietz at Arizona had studied with, with Mr. Winstead, so I ended up out there. Played for a couple of years. Um, played a lot of quintet literature when I was out there, which was a good thing for me, and I enjoyed it. And then I met a woman. I fell in love. I moved to Boulder. What? What can I say? She lived in Boulder, so I moved up here. Interesting. Um, and it's not quite as simple as that. Uh, there were a few possibilities that I could have could have worked through, but I came up and was interested in the possibility of, of moving to Boulder. So wait, um, you met her in, in Arizona? No, we met at the Opera in the Ozarks oh. uh, Summer Opera Festival. And we were both was, playing in the orchestra. She was already a student at CU? Boulder. She was already a master's student at CU Boulder and had another year left. As it happens, I came in and took a, I took a lesson with Dr. Ishikawa. Had a really, man, he, he's a very insightful, teacher and he's got some really great ideas but the thing that kicked it off was that I got to sit in on a studio class uh, for the bassoon studio and it so happened that this was coming right in front of um, the university concerto competition and one of the bassoon students had won the concerto competition or maybe was days away from winning the concerto competition with the Mozart and what I distinctly remember was the sound. Uh, I wanted I wanted a bassoon sound like that, and so uh, that made it pretty easy for me to decide that I wanted to study at Colorado. Who was that, Mike? Yeah. Well. Well. Uh, it it was Cowdy actually. <laughs> yeah, my first year. Cowdy is the only person to win twice the CU Concerto Competition twice. Two times. Yay. Yeah. Yay. And both times she just refused to pick an interesting piece. Well, it's not my fault. <laughs> First one, the Mozart is the standard to play with my video of the dream. It's for the This episode of the Boulder Bassoon Quartet podcast is brought to you by Forest's Music and Barton Kane. At Forest Music, you can find every item, every accessory, every kind of instrument that any double reed player could ever need. Reeds? Oh yeah, lots of reeds. How about bassoons? They got bassoons. Oboes? They got vocal. They got vocals, they got oboes, they got English horns, they got... Stuff you you never even knew about. Forestsmusic.com Barton Kane has they have a wide variety available, a variety of shapes. 
profiles and I even have an artist series, which includes, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but it includes Daryl Hale, professor of bassoon at Louisiana State University, and really the, the origin for the whole bassoon quartet. It's easy, it's simple, it's high quality, it's bartonkane.com. Purposefully, several things, sure. <laughs> like what, Mike? <laughs> Ooh, let's let's talk about those. <laughs> I I mean, what what do you want to know? Um, we could talk about the fact that the first time that I played in performance class, I mentioned that I I was envious of the sound concept that I heard. The first time that I played in performance class, um, I think I played the first movement of the. Carl Maria von Weber. Is it CU? Concerto at CU, yeah. And um, Eric was a sophomore. Johnson. He gave the first comment. And I'll put parentheses and, and like a pause to say that at the University of Arizona, Dr. Dietz's studio has a rule that you always have to um, pair your suggestive criticisms sandwiched in between two compliments. Mm -hmm. So it has to go, I really liked, I bet you could improve on, you did a really good job with, and there's your comment. And so advantage, um, very good rapport in that studio, they're very supportive. Uh, disadvantage, sometimes it can be sugar-coated a little mm -hmm. bit. So Eric's comment, he led right off the bat and he said, yeah, I don't know, but I think maybe you could like sound less raunchy. <laughs> <laughs> and he was exactly right. And, and looking back on it in particular, he was exactly right. But wow, that stung. <laughs> what kind of playing does raunchy describe? Uh, I mean, it describes a reed that's too thin and too oh. wild and too flexible. And it describes an articulation that uh, is entirely too aggressive for the late classical, early romantic period. Can I ask a question to you guys? This is my long-term kind of question about those like comments mm -hmm. in a studio class. Because when I moved to the U.S., that's the first thing I was... I open because most of the time if we have a studio like that, criticize, that's it. Nobody says anything good stuff in Japan. But it's kind of, so the first time like I come in the CU studio, it's exactly sugar quarter and nobody says something honest and I was like shocked. Mm -hmm. Like why didn't I tell any like you thought honest? You, you thought nobody was honest? Nobody. Interesting. That and I was talking to the Clovis, which is who is um fruit player in my quint that he is um South African. I think South African they're also kinda of same rules in Japan, it's like more European style teaching. And he exactly agree with me. So I don't know, like like if you guys like, you know, go something circumstance like that, like if you somebody just like say the Chris side stuff, are you gonna it's gonna be a cry? I don't know. I always make Are we gonna cry? Get our feelings hurt. <laughs> it certainly depends yeah. on the individual, I'm sure. Yeah, I always wonder about that because it feels like you guys just always quote everything. You know? 
Well, I do think it's important to give compliments so long as they're genuine. You know, if you're just mm -hmm. saying a compliment because it's a rule, you have to say something nice before you can say a criticism, then it's going to become yeah. fake, shallow. Um, but it, it seems like if anybody's going to go up on stage and play for you, regardless of how they sound, there is something that you can find to compliment them on because it takes some guts to go up on a stage and play in front of anybody for any reason whatsoever. Yeah. I think that's true. I may have mentioned this once before, but when I was at Arizona, uh, I had a, a class where one of the assignments was to contact a professional in the industry, and there was a prescribed uh, template of interview questions to ask. And I managed to get in touch with um, Christopher Millard, mm -hmm. who I think was in mm -hmm. Vancouver at the time. Uh, and one of the questions... Well, two of the questions come to mind in this conversation. One of the questions was, how do you motivate your students to practice and to do well? And his response was, I don't. People who need motivation from the outside don't come to me. They study somewhere else. All of my students, like all of my students like are already motivated. Uh, and the other question that comes to mind was, um, well, I don't even remember the question, but I distinctly remember him saying that uh, he finds that some of his students do go on to very successful careers outside of music and that it seems medical schools and law schools in particular look very favorably on a music degree because of the discipline and all those other skills that Fred Peter Bark was talking about. Well, and we know a person in med school and law school yeah. from our bassoon studio, right? Yeah. Well, one yeah. of each, right? Yeah, yeah. one of each. Yeah. Go tell your friends. Grab a bassoon. Start chopping out. All right, Mike, what do you want us to play to wrap this up? Um, the bongos. Bongos? I would like Andy Kaufman to come back from wherever he's been hiding, faking death, and play the bongos. Uh, I, I was thinking as we've kind of been going through these things that I, I get easily very nostalgic about the people that I've run across in my life. I've been very fortunate to have lots of cool... Uh, and enriching experiences with some really great people. One of the things that sticks with me a lot is the um, Hindemith Concerto for Trumpet Bassoon and String Orchestra. Played that with Matt Kirkpatrick my last semester in undergraduate. Uh, and Matt taught me several things about musicianship and discipline and preparation. Uh, so was you, a really good you cheated? You played it again as a grad student? Is that cheating? <laughs> yes, that's cheating. What? Did you do it with an orchestra both times? No. Uh, so the orchestra one was yeah, because I saw you do that one. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I played it. I played it with Derek McDonald, and we uh -huh. got a teeny tiny little orchestra to play with us. So at any rate, I'm very fond of that piece for a variety of reasons, including the fact that I think it's cool, and including the fact that I've had some good experiences with good people surrounding that piece. So, the Concerto for Trumpet, Bassoon, and String Orchestra by Paul Hindemith.